Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. The, the border guard was like really kind of like stern. He was like, what's this? And I was like, oh, it's glue. He was like, why have you got glue? I was like, um, we're, we're, sniff, we're sniffing it, obviously. We, we like glue. I, I love paper mache, dude. Just, what does it mean to you? <laughs> I like, yeah, I like crafts. I, I mean, I do know that the Moroccan border security are avid listeners to this podcast, so you might be screwed after coming, coming clean with that. So. I mean, probably. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name is Tim. And I'm Evan. we got a great one for you today with our new friend Remy Bumstead, a documentary filmmaker who is dropping a film on Matador Network called Jenga Bus later this month, January 26th to be specific. This film chronicles him and a partner's journey from the U.K., to the Gambia, driving a van to donate it to a rural school for deaf children. It is a fascinating tale of goodwill and one hell of an adventure. We're really excited to get into it with Remy here in a few minutes. But first, Eben, you know what's coming. We got our famous hot takes section. And I understand you've got a good one to start off this week. Uh, I guess that remains to be seen, but we'll start off with mine. My first question for you today is, do you eat hot food in the summer and cold food in the winter? I would go so far as to say that in the winter, I'm probably more preferable to hot food, and in the summer, I'll do whatever. Uh, that said, I eat a lot of, like, cold salads, you know, especially as, like, a side with dinner or whatever, and I'll do that year-round. So I don't think I really make those decisions based on the season. Okay. Because I've always felt weird because I don't take the season into account at all when I order food. It's like I've cr- I can crave ice cream in the middle of January when it's two degrees out. I will eat. French, I love French onion soup. All over French onion soup in the middle of summer when it's scorching hot out. Doesn't matter. And people are always like, really? You're eating soup right now? But you think about it. You're in a restaurant, right? The restaurants are pretty much the same temperature. They're temperature controlled. Doesn't matter what's going on outside. I'm in the restaurant. I feel like soup. I'm going to eat soup. Doesn't matter if it's July. Right. No, I agree. I, I, you know, I, especially, I guess soup would be the one thing I probably eat more of in the winter. Uh, if only because we make it more at home. But yeah, I, I don't know. That's not something I've ever paid too much mind to. Yeah, I guess if you're walking around outside and it's really hot, then I would be more likely to crave ice cream on a hot day than I would if it's negative two. But in in terms of restaurant settings, if I if it's uh, middle of January, it's freezing out, and I want dessert, and the, there's an ice cream dessert, I'm going to get it. Does I don't give a shit that it's middle of the winter. Right, and you know what? Few things are better than fish tacos uh, on the beach in the summertime, and that's a hot dish, so... Now, speaking of hot dishes, I got another hot take, and we're talking about vegan restaurants because a few of those are popping up in my town, and I don't know what the the demand or demographic is for that right now, but do we need entire restaurants dedicated to vegetarian and vegan food? I mean, I'm going to say yes. I, I There are some good takes on that, I think. I the one thing they're going to have to contend with is that they're going to they're immediately limiting their audience base and restaurant profit margins are razor thin as it is uh even in the best of times so i i feel like it's a it's a tough sell to stay in business for a long time doing that that said i think most major cities have very successful iterations of that so yeah i 
have no issue with that. And I think if you have a diet, like a, a very popular dietary restriction, you know, it probably makes sense business-wise to open a restaurant that's solely dedicated to that. But I think that these restaurants don't cater specifically to vegans and vegetarians. They cater to a more general audience who are under the impression that a vegan vegetarian diet or menu is more healthy than a non-vegan vegetarian menu. Like, I don't know how many vegans live in my town. I live in a town of 18,000 people. And there's a new, uh, I don't know, vegetarian restaurant opening up in a, a month. And there's a few other similar spots, like very like ultra organic, farm to table, healthy stuff. And that's all great. But I feel like there's enough options on regular restaurant menus for vegetarian people that a whole restaurant isn't necessary. Like I can go to any restaurant in town as a vegetarian and find stuff to eat. I guess yeah, it's a it's something you'll have to wait and see in in your town. I would think in a progressive place like Massachusetts, it might be successful. But I mean, I will say that vegan options on restaurant menus have gotten a lot better probably over the last ten years. But when if all there is is like a fried veggie burger that's probably just a Boca patty pulled out of a box and thrown in the deep fryer, like that's you know that's terrible if 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 that's the only thing you can order on a menu. You right. Know? But 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 I think it's gotten. The scene has gotten a lot better recently. Most restaurants now have specific entrees that don't have meat or avoid super, you know, certain dietary restrictions. Well, the more I think about it, I actually think a gluten-free only restaurant would be more successful. Because think about it, gluten-free stuff on menus of regular restaurants are just kind of token menu items. They're not good. They're it's like, well, we need something for the gluten-free people, so we're going to have two or three things that are gluten-free. And that's from knowing a few gluten-free people who have this problem all the time. There's like one restaurant they can eat at in, in my town that has like a few decent gluten-free options. But there's a lot of gluten-free people nowadays, whether it's for celiac or from personal lifestyle choice. And if you had a whole restaurant dedicated to making good, quality, fresh, gluten-free recipes, you don't get that. That's hard to find at the grocery store. It's hard to find in restaurants. That I think people would really eat up, no pun intended. Right. No, I agree. I, I'd be uh, I'd be curious to try a, a gluten free restaurant as somebody who has vocally mocked gluten free dishes. Oh, yeah, I do all the time. But I, I still think if I was going to start a restaurant, it would 100 percent be that rather than a vegetarian restaurant. All right. Your turn, Tim. Hit me with something. All right, Evan. Uh, the first one I've got for you today, you know, I was reading this other this article the other day about fear. As a I don't I don't have any to answer your question. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, good. Then, then your answer won't be good here. But uh, I, it got me thinking back to before I went to Columbia a few years ago, and, and this ties into what Ross Borden said on the episode about Saudi Arabia. You know, stereotypes about destinations. I found myself nervous before I flew down there, uh, for no real reason other than things I'd always heard about Colombia. And I'd done my research. I had planned. I knew everything. I knew you had to get in the front seat of the Uber instead of the back seat of the Uber. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I had done a fair amount of research. I had a phone full of notes. Still, I was nervous. Uh, and, and I felt the same way before I went uh, to Bali in 2017. And not so much because I was afraid, but because I was thinking in my head, like, am I crazy for doing this? Am I crazy for, like, going and renting a room in this place and going to co-work and not knowing anybody or any, have any idea what it's going to be like when I get there? Like, is that something you feel? I would say that twice I felt that way. The first time being when I went to Israel, which was the second international trip I'd ever taken, the first being England. 
And I was like 21, 22 years old. And in my mind, the Middle East was full of terrorists, as we talked about with Ross. So I was like, okay, like Israel, there's all these on the news, you hear about it all the time. Uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and there's bombings, and there's the, the Iron Dome and all this stuff. And they even took us to the Syrian border. You could hear the bombs from the Syrian civil war really far away. So going to Israel, I was always, I was very on edge. I was worried about being pickpocketed. I was worried about terrorism. They, they had these checkpoints that you stop at the bus stops and soldiers, armed soldiers come on your bus to like make sure there's no insurgents. And that's scary. So prior to the, that trip, I was nervous for sure. Part of that was a lack of experience traveling and part of it was just seeing the news and thinking that I was going to get blown up by a terrorist. Um, unfounded, it was it felt incredibly safe the entire time. The second time was when I went to Bulgaria, uh, a little more seasoned at traveling this time, but I'd never been to Eastern Europe. And Bulgaria, I'd been told people are always looking to take advantage of you. Uh, we get there, and me and my friend are on Tinder for the first very first day, and we end up matching with some girl who says she's going to pick us up and drive us into the city and give us a tour and go to like go to like a bar and we're immediately like this this is way too easy there's no way eastern europe they're looking to take advantage of us this is a scam all the stereotypes we'd heard were like this we shouldn't do this we shouldn't do it finally we're like fuck it it'll be a good story like hopefully we don't get murdered and so we're waiting outside in the dark uh for this girl to pick us up thinking it's going to be like a bunch of thuggish looking Eastern European dudes in sweatsuits. And sure enough, it was just this, this girl and her friend, super nice, went to some bars, met all their friends, had a great night. Everyone was so friendly and couldn't have been more opposite from what the stereotypes had led us to believe. So those two instances where I was genuinely afraid and sketched out before going to a destination had been proven completely wrong. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I you know I would say that I was my fears were proven unfounded on both of the counts that I shared, both Colombia and and uh, Bali and Southeast Asia in general. All three times I've been over there have proven to be amazing places to visit. Uh, my next question for you, Evan, and I'll I'll share one after I ask the question. What is your most embarrassing Valentine's Day story? And mine happened when I was in seventh grade. I had had a crush on this girl for a long time, but I had no, I had never talked to her and I know I had like no plan. But the week before Valentine's Day, I was at the mall and I was at the dollar store and they were, they had this mug. It was like a coffee mug and it had a little spin wheel on it with like, and you spin the wheel and it would have like different romantic phrases or whatever. So I bought this mug and I was like, I'm going to give it to her on Valentine's Day and then I'm going to ask her to be my girlfriend and we're going to go see a movie. And it's going to be great. So I had this whole plan worked up in my head. I've been going over it a thousand times, a thousand times. I had one class with her. We sat on the other side of the room from each other. Um, so the day comes, I go to class. I have this mug in, a, in, a, in the box still. I get to class really early. I go to where she always sits and I, I put it on her seat. And then I went to my seat and I sat down. And for the entire class, I refused to look over there at all. And then as soon as class was over, I beelined it out of there, and I never said a word. So she got the mug, but so has no idea she what got the this random. <laughs> yeah, she got this random mug on her seat uh, that was just sitting there from, like, this dude. I'm sure, like, somebody else saw me put it there and told her that it was me. But, like, I never said a word to her Or about another it, guy in that class took Or another guy in that class took responsibility for it 
star dating her is now married with kids. Probably. And it's all because yeah. of you. Good, good for him. If That's he paying his, it forward. I was terrible. You know, I blew it. So maybe if some guy took advantage of it, then good for him. That is funny. Remember those like Valentine's Day cards you get in elementary school mm-hmm. that would have like Looney Tunes characters on them with the sweet sweethearts. Yep. That was such a nice day. You know, you just get kids like Halloween well, part yeah, two. Valentine's Day was, was great awesome. when you're like a grade school kid. Uh, okay. So my story isn't as it's it's embarrassing in a different kind of way. So uh, I think I was maybe 24 years old, and I was between jobs and looking to get a job as a food runner in a restaurant. And I had a, a my first day was unbeknownst to me at the time when I signed up for this was Valentine's Day. So it's like a very nice restaurant that people would go to for Valentine's Day dinner. And my first day working was Valentine's Day. So it's a three floor restaurant with so a lot of stairs. So I am like trying to care. I'm not good at carrying trays. I'm trying to carry this tray up the stairs. I'm, I feel like a huge loser because I'm like I'm working on Valentine's Day, meaning everyone there like knows is like looking at me being like, oh, let's check out this idiot. Like clearly new on the job, doesn't know what he's doing and has to work on Valentine's Day. Like he's got nothing else better to be doing. So there's that. And I I'm going down the stairs with a tray and I literally drop it everywhere. Five plates shatter in front of an entire dining room full of people on Valentine's Day. And they all look at me. There's so much to clean up. I don't even know where to start. I just stand there looking like an idiot. And all these like couples in love. And then your like, ultimate crush was sitting there across the room. Nope. So that would make the story a lot better. Uh, the 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 punchline, I guess, if there is one to this story, is that I was just like so embarrassed and traumatized and hated that job so much that I quit the next day, and that was my only day ever working. So I worked at this restaurant for one day on Valentine's Day, dropped a plate or tray of food, shattered everywhere embarrass myself quit immediately if there's any long-term staff that are still working there they're probably like remember that guy that worked here for one day on valentine's day and he totally blew it and then just never showed up again yeah well thankfully the restaurant went out of business like two or three years later and i i take full responsibility ah okay well you're off the hook then from any like long-standing shame yeah the valentine's day fiasco of, of 2014 they still call it yeah. All right. Well, we're hoping for no Valentine's Day fiascos in 2022. But before Valentine's Day, we've got a great interview with Remy, and we'll get into that right now. We'll see you on the other side. All right. We're here with Remy Bumstead. Thank you so much for joining No Blackout Dates, Remy. You are about to drop a film where you drove a bus from the U.K., down to the Gambia to donate to a school for rural deaf children, which is in itself an absolutely fascinating topic. But before we get into the details of it all, I want to know where this idea came from and and why drive a bus that far? Um, I mean, it came about because I was actually in the Gambia at this deaf school making a video about the project and about kind of life for deaf children in the Gambia. And then when we were there, we were having this chat with uh, some of the teachers and some of the the kind of head people at the charity. And they were saying how there's still so many deaf kids in these like really super rural parts around the school who have no way of getting to the school. So they were like, oh, well, there needs to be a bus, you know, like. um, And then that was just the first initial thing. But then at the same time I was there, there was this like 
Dakar rally thing, which is basically where people like drive to Dakar and beyond um, with cars and then they sell them. So I was like, oh, why don't we, you know, fundraise to get a bus, we'll drive it. And then at the same time, we can use this whole process to kind of raise awareness about the charity, about deaf education in the Gambia. Um, and also equally, I mean, it would be a pretty sick journey to do. Um, so it was like, you know, the, ma the main thing was, you know, get this bus um, and raise awareness for the charity. But also equally, you know, like, I obviously put my hand up first being like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do the journey. I'll do the drive. So I know what were you doing in your everyday life job wise when you decided to do this? I think a lot of people when they hear, oh, yeah, I just drove from London to Africa on this crazy road trip that took, you know, weeks. They're like, how do you have time to do this? So how, how, how did you carve out time to make this trip a reality? I mean, I'm lucky in the way that my job is making films. Um and largely for for charities so and also you know like various other kind of filming jobs but being you know freelance allows me to be able to carve out the time and in terms of the funding I mean this so this started in like early 2018 which is when I was there first um but it wasn't until like two years late uh yeah two years that we actually set off. So it was like literally two years of fundraising. Um, and so many times I was like, oh, it's not gonna happen. I'm gonna give up, like, um, but we just kept on going. And then actually it wasn't until like the last few months before we set off that suddenly we got this, cause there was a lot of like drip funding from like friends and family and kind of that GoFundMe type stuff. But the stuff that really helped was we got like a few big chunks of funding um, from a few different uh, organizations and then that was the real kind of like oh, okay wow now we've got to do it we've got to find a van um, and actually like plan the journey rather than it being this almost like a pipe dream like oh yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna fundraise you were already involved with uh, with the charity prior to this journey I, my I was curious how you settled on this one school um, and, and how you came involved, how did you get involved with the charity in the first place? Yeah, so I've been kind of involved with the charity since, like, I was a kid. So it was set up by a local guy in the town I grew up in, in uh, St Albans, which is, like, just north, north of London. And he set up a charity for deaf children in uh, Pakistani Kashmir. Set this up in, like, 2002, and he ran a local, like, green grocer shop which is where like me and my family would go to you know get our shopping um, and we became friendly with with Mohammed who runs the shop and the charity so then like little small fundraising things like fundraising events in like local uh, local centers and parks and stuff I would always help out to you know just be there kind of help out doing stuff and then as I got older when I kind of started moving in more into like filming and um, especially filming with charities, that's when Mohammed asked me to, to come out to the school that he'd set up through this charity Cadect um, 
in the Gambia. And then that's when this kind of whole project started. But I've been kind of loosely connected, helping out and volunteering with Connect for, for quite a few years, since I was a kid, basically. So when you're planning a trip like this, because I think people who plan road trips, it's kind of one of two categories. They, and I know this isn't just a typical fun spring break kind of road trip. This had a, you know, a, a humanitarian kind of purpose. But did you plan out every stop? Did you have like, okay, this night we're going to stay here. This night we're going to stay here. Or did you, and like, you know, maybe do some pit stops for sightseeing? Or are you kind of just winging it, hitting the road, seeing how far you get, seeing what the elements are, and then taking it from there? Yeah, well, I mean, this journey, it's, it, it was hard to fully plan it. We did like quite a lot of research, like reading blogs of people that have done like similar journeys. Um, but those blogs are always like so vague. You actually, in truth, we had no idea like what we were getting into. Like we had the, we felt comfortable to a certain degree but I think it was also I mean it wasn't I don't want to say like we were totally reckless and careless like I feel like we did a lot of planning but in terms of like the actual in terms of the actual route like the road there's you can't deviate that much like once you get into Morocco and especially when you get down to like Western Sahara there's only one road you know like there's only one route you can really go um, but then in terms of like where we stayed, we would just see how we'd get on. You know, we, we did a lot of wild camping, camped out in, uh, uh, petrol stations, uh, found the odd, um, like camp spot through different apps. Like there's an app called iOverlander, which is kind of like a community, community run app where people post different campsites or different like wild spots. So we used that for quite a lot because um, that also had lots of good advice about certain checkpoints. So there was like certain kind of road checkpoints in different countries um, and they kind of gave tips of like how to get through or like if you saw a certain person you like went over to him and kind of gave him like a pack of cigarettes or something because you knew that he was the one that's going to like allow you through. So a lot of it was like just totally on the fly. But then also we did use kind of these apps and kind of reading the odd blog here and there to kind of give us a little bit of a little bit of the kind of lowdown. Can you take us through a little bit of what the route actually looked like just to give people a sense of how huge the scope of this trip was, what countries you passed through. Yeah, so we started, um, we actually bought the van in Germany um, because we needed it to be a left-hand drive van, whereas in the UK they're all right-hand drive. I'm getting that right, I think. Um, so it's the opposite, basically, to the UK. Um, so we got this van in Germany, which is where Alex lives. So she was the one that kind of found this van, which was a old school bus. So it was literally perfect. Um, and it was old enough to be useful in the Gambia. So like a lot of the vans 
you see there aren't super modern with all that computer stuff. So new vehicles are too new to even own in the Gambia because there's not the technology to replace parts when you need to. Yes. Interesting. Spot okay. on. And that's why you guys, that's why you had that specific vehicle from Germany specifically because I, I found myself when I was watching the film wondering like there's got to be vans closer to the to the Gambia than this one. Like why did they use this one specifically? But now, now it makes sense. Yeah. And the other thing for getting it in Europe rather than... Um you know, getting it somewhere else was because it was, we worked it out in terms of like cost. It was actually cheaper to do the journey ourselves than putting it on a shipping container, for example, or, um, you know, getting someone else to do it. And the majority of the vans say in the Gambia, the reason we didn't get it in the Gambia, which probably most people would be like, well, hang on, why'd you do this drive when there's surely vans there? is because the majority vans are already imported from Europe, so there's a markup. So it was like, so it's easier for us, instead of someone getting a van in Europe, importing it into Gambia, selling it for a markup, we were, you know, getting it for cost price in Germany. Right, right. Doing the journey as cheaply as possible. And you got a sweet documentary then, film out of it too. So and we got, and, well, exactly, that was the other thing. It was like using this as a, using this film as a as the kind of awareness campaign to kind of drum up more support for the charity um so there's all these different things that came into the the planning process um but yeah so we got the van in germany um came back to the uk with it because we filled up the van with loads of donations um so we started in the uk took the ferry from calais into uh, from Dover into Calais, into France, went through France, went over the Pyrenees mountains into Spain, through Spain, um, and then down from Spain into the bottom of Spain, uh, into the north of Morocco, into Tangier, and then went through Morocco, over the Atlas Mountains, down into the Drar Valley, because this is where we had planned to meet with the organisation working with nomadic families in the desert. Um, and then stayed, you know, a bit of time in the desert with them, then came back towards the coast, went down through the southern Morocco into Western Sahara, down from Western Sahara over no man's land uh, into Mauritania, through Mauritania, which was literally just like nothing desert apart from the capital, like insane, like nothing. You see nothing, just beige, flat beige for like hours and hours and hours and hours. And then down into Senegal and then through Senegal into the Gambia. How many times did you have to answer the exact same question from people who saw the bus and asked you like, oh, what's uh, what's this? What's that school for the deaf sign? Like, what are you guys doing? I have to tell the exact same story like a million times. All the time, yeah. But it was also quite good because we had all this branding. It was quite clear, a that we were doing it for a charity thing. Yeah. Um, and b it was an intrigue thing. People were like, oh, what are you doing? So then we got to say the kind of same story over again. But it also helped with like borders. I was gonna say that that, that I feel like that probably helped you 
avoid trouble possibly because if someone's looking to like definitely I don't know, be a dick and pull you over or give you trouble at the border or rob you it's like if they can read it assume, assuming they can read what the bus says it's like ah, i will let this guy who's driving the school for the school for the deaf bus go yeah exactly yeah and i think it like because a lot of the borders were could be pretty tricky um and it was actually the thing we were most worried about getting through Europe was easy but then as soon as we got into Morocco we had our first like just even the Moroccan border was the was our like first challenge we were like oh my god are we going to get through because we'd read all these other reports of like people waiting there like 10 hours 12 hours and then being denied um and then we, our van was and they, you're also not allowed to import stuff and our van was full of like gifts and like lego and like school supplies but we'd hidden it all under like loads of different things. <laughs> so if they would have searched like... you, they're not going to find drugs or anything like that. They're going to find like Legos and no, they just find loads tents. of Prit stick, Lego and Prit. Yeah. Um, and also a drone. I had my drone with me, which again is illegal to bring in, but that was like fully stuffed under, like they weren't going to find that, but they did like a load of Prit stick had like spilt out, you know, Prit stick, like glue stick. Yep. yep. Um, and then the, the border guards, was like really kind of like stern he was like what's this and i was like oh it's glue he's like why have you got glue i was like um we're we're, sniff we're sniffing it obviously we, if we like glue i, I love paper mache dude just what does it mean to you i like yeah i like crafts i i mean i do know that the moroccan border security are avid listeners to this podcast so you might be screwed after <laughs> I mean, coming, coming clean with that so but you know what I, I keep thinking is that movie from like 20 years ago, Road Trip, where it's those college kids from New York driving down uh, to the south and they get, I believe it's a bus from like a school for the blind. <laughs> yeah. So you guys, you guys are like the, the actual version with a cause of that movie, which is like a stupid rom-com <laughs> from 20 years ago. You guys are like the real life, let's, let's actually make a difference version yeah, of that. Yeah, too right. It's a very, really similar trip. So many similarities with that trip as well. Um, but yeah, no, it was good. I mean, the, the, it was, the border crossings were like some of the most like tricky, sketchy bits. Yeah, because if you're trying to smuggle people or drugs or whatever, it's going to... A bus is sketchy. Like if you're trying to cross in like a sedan, that's one thing. But a big bus, like that's... You're going to get stopped every time. Every time. But luckily, so a lot of... A lot of the borders, they were kind of like, oh, so you're doing a charity thing. Like you can, you can, you know, we're not going to check you as hard. Um, but there was still some like mad, the one, so the border into, I can't remember where it was, into Western, into Mauritania, out of Morocco, into Mauritania, before you get into no man's land. Um, that border, like we had to go through this like machine that took like a full kind of x-ray scan of the van. It's like super like intense, the, the border checks. But it didn't catch the Legos though. Didn't catch the Lego, no, we were all good. <laughs> so not, not a great x-ray. <laughs> so it doesn't work, no. Again, they're they're too busy looking for drugs and like illegal alcohol. They don't they don't they're not onto the Lego beat. No, not yet. That's um, a great takeaway though. If you're trying to smuggle anything, do it in a school for the deaf van. Like who's gonna suspect you? Well, this is the thing, because also when we were in Western Sahara, we, which is like, a, it's a, it's a Morocco, it's, they call it the last colony in Africa. It's basically militarily occupied by Morocco. And again, like if, you know, you've got Moroccan, um, you know, 
tourist board listening, then I don't want to go through too through this too much because um, it's quite political. But we were working. We we'd met up with some some people there in Western Sahara um, that were activists. Um, but whenever we'd meet them, we were always in our in our you know our charity van. So whenever the military police stopped us, they never expected us to be journalists because journalists aren't allowed there. You know, they're always deported. And because, you know, I had all my camera gear, I had drones, they could easily search, search me and see all this camera kit and then be like, hang on, you're, you're deported. And then we'd have to leave the van in the desert. Um, but luckily, having all this branding showing that we, A, weren't just coming to Western Sahara, we were, you know, going all the way to Gambia, that allowed us to have a little bit more kind of freedom in a way it sounds like you could have been stopped and deported at any number of points along this route like if you told me all these things in advance of the trip i would have given you like a 15 percent success rate yeah i mean in a way in a way i kind of i mean i i was fairly sure we would manage it but i was basing that on just pure luck rather than right actual like confidence in actually being able to achieve it so driving through the Sahara Desert, what what is the experience like there? Is it seemed like quite a bit you were just driving on the sand, and I believe at one point I saw you even getting towed. So what is I mean, is that even a doable endeavor uh, for most people, or what is the experience like there? I mean, it's it's um, it's sketchy, like especially most of Mauritania, the 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 highway. There's a, there's basically apart from in the city, there's pretty much only one road going from north to south um and that road is um you know at best it's a a a dirt road you know sometimes it's 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 paved at large parts of it but a lot of those bits that are kind of like tarmacked and paved are completely like smashed up and covered in sand um and i'd never really had any experience of driving on sand neither of us had like Alexandra she she uh lived in Australia for a while so she had a bit of experience driving on sand but we weren't rally drivers but whenever we did get stuck in the sand which we did quite a lot we were always super lucky that there were people there I mean there was one time that we got stuck on this tight like Google Maps took us on some weird routes like We'd be on a road that was like a proper road and then suddenly it'd be like, oh, turn left here. And we'd be like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> you gotta love it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, it's pretty much, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to go straight here. This is the only road. We'd be like, turn left here. It's like, okay. <laughs> so we're doing this for like half an hour, an hour. And then we're like, we are, we're literally sat like on sand, not even road, just like sand with tire marks. And we're like, this is not good. And then suddenly we got completely stuck. But, but you do it because she tells you you'll save 15 seconds. So you, you do it. You, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So of course I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's like that office episode where the GPS tells Michael Scott to turn off the road into a lake. And he's like, the GPS is telling me to do it. So I, I got to do it. <laughs> I know. But we did it. And we did this a few times. But yeah, we got, we got used to kind of pushing the van out of sand and kind of using basic kind of French and kind of hand gestures to be like <laughs> we don't know what we're doing <laughs> can someone help but yeah I mean it like to for anyone else doing it or thinking of doing it it's totally doable 
it's totally doable. Just ex expect the unexpected, um, because you just never, you never know. I'm still in all these like Facebook groups about like overlanding through Africa, and it's amazing. Like so many people do these kind of journeys, but usually in like big kind of like four by four rigs, and then we did it in you know a transit van, but. It did it, it's, and it's being used, you know, every day as a school bus now. So it's a good van. I miss, I, do you know what? I miss that van. And you, you, would you sleep in it? Yeah, so we slept, we slept in, we had a little tent with us as well. Um, but after like two nights, we realised that we couldn't both sleep in it because we'd realised we bought a one-man tent by accident. Um, so we'd take it in turns. One night you'd sleep in the tent, the other night you'd sleep in the van. All that preparation for border crossings, for disguising the toys, then you go and buy a one-person tent by accident. <laughs> I know. And we, we bought these little camp chairs as well, but they're for children. So like, we couldn't even sit on them. They were so uncomfortable. <laughs> You're keeping the theme consistent. At least you can go then and give, yeah. just give them to the kids. Well, exactly. We gave, we gave them to the school afterwards. So they're being, again, it was, right. all, it was all part of the thing. Gave the tent as well to, to the school. I guess kind of to expand on that a little bit. So there's a lot of a lot of content creators, I would say, uh, that probably want to use some of their time and their skill set to give back to charities. Outside of making a uh, a far flung documentary film, what would you say are some of the best ways for people to do that? Because particularly in Africa, it seems like it's an, there's an almost overwhelming amount of organizations to donate money to, but you don't really know where that money is going to go. And a lot of people want to be on the ground. So what are some of your tips? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's like the first thing is, is, is research, you know, and I think it's, it's really looking into, because there's so many different organizations out there and some of them aren't necessarily doing the, the, the best thing. And I, I see it so often with a lot of kind of like Western run charities that in a way they're not actually doing any good a lot a lot a lot of small kind of charities are but i've seen it a lot that um some kind of organizations run by western people that have kind of gone to africa for example are kind of almost perpetuating these narratives of of you know everybody in africa needs help everybody um you know, everybody has, every child has a fly in their eye. And you see it so often with this kind of like poverty porn um, kind of content that, you know, it's, it's perpetuating this, this un, untrue narrative of, of Africa totally being poor. So I think when looking at So what's the most the motivation behind that? What's the incentive to, to put that kind of stuff out well, there? Well, I don't know. I think, I think A, it's... On the one hand, A, it's lack of education and lack of understanding because, you know, there's so much going. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge continent. There's so much wealth. There's so much. Yeah, there's loads of poverty, but there's also so much innovation, so much other stuff. Whereas a lot of people in the West tend to focus on um, on the kind of the poverty stories. And I think a lot of large organizations and I think a lot of the stuff that was kind of put out a lot from like Live Aid and all this sort of these big kind of organizations they started this kind of narrative of like oh you know flies in the eyes and I think 
because it pulls on people's heartstrings, people are going to be like, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're poor there, I need to donate. So it does, like in terms of a fundraising thing, sometimes that kind of narrative works. But I think when, in terms of advice for people looking to get involved more and do more potentially, is have that on your radar of like, is this, what is this um, organization really trying to do? But that's tricky. Do you find like, so my, my wife spent three years living in Togo in West Africa in the Peace Corps. And she says all the time that like, you know, yeah, there are, there are plenty of people that need help. There is plenty of poverty, but there is largely not a grand desire to become the West uh, in the minds of a lot of people. Well, minds of a lot of people, they like their rural lifestyle and, you know, they, they don't, you, you see all the commercials of people living on a dollar a day, but they're not they're not living in a place that necessitates more than that. And a lot of them are subsistence farmers. Uh, did you find that there is a desire to modernize or change uh, from their way of living? Or do you find a, a sort of contentment um, among, among people? I think it's, yeah, I think it's a tricky one. I think it's, um, it's so nuanced because on the one hand, um, on the one hand, there's so many structures and kind of like grand government kind of, big financial institution structures which have total, totally crippled parts of the developing world um, and it's totally unfair what's happening in terms of uh, lots of these loans that need to be repaid um, and things like that so there is there is a need for fairness economic fairness and economic um, freedom and ability to, to access Education, for example, like education is key. But I think in terms of this idea of, you know, wanting to be more like the West, I think there is that in it, in it to an extent, in the sense that the, the, the grip of kind of globalization and of kind of Western media and um, music and all that stuff, that, that literally touches kind of every part of the globe, it seems. But in terms of becoming like the West in terms of society, I don't necessarily think it's like a, a blanket, like, yeah, everyone wants to be like the West. Because in a way, we, like, we have so much wrong here in terms of the way our society runs and how unfair it is and how, you know, our lack of community, our lack of kind of, um, you know, shared economy stuff. Whereas in large parts of rural parts of Africa, community is key, you know, like people, even family structures are, are larger. It's not just necessarily like biological nuclear families. It's the whole kind of community is part of the family. And you've got like loads of aunties and um, loads of uncles. And there's that it's a sense of shared, shared living, which we lack here a lot. Yeah, we, we talked on a, a previous episode about we're talking about Saudi Arabia and we're talking about how people confuse modernization with westernization and how while modernization might be a good thing with relation to Africa westernization isn't necessarily the same thing or a good thing or what they want yeah exactly and I think there's so much even in terms of kind of um, knowledge bases and and big organizations there's so much good stuff and like powerful stuff which is totally homegrown in in Africa and you go to like places like Dakar for example in Senegal 
it's just like a, you know, a massive city like anywhere else in the world. This, it's, it's got so much going on. And it's just interesting that it's, 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 this, it's this narrative that gets kind of brought up again and again that like, I don't know, people need helping, people need saving. And it's like, no, people need the, the ability to access um, services and education and, and kind of opportunities. Everyone, everyone's can do it and should be able to do it in their own, in their own way. Yeah, it's interesting how like, growing up, you think that Africa, all of Africa needs help and that all these charities yeah. are... Because yeah, because it's what we're told. I certainly what we're thought told. That. Our education is so flawed. Yeah, and, I, and it's almost like, do you think like, oh, was there, is there all, some kind of ulterior motive toward having charitable organizations designed to help all these different facets of African life to make them more like Western life. And it seems on the face of it that it's, it's whether they asked for it or not, it's a good thing funneling money and resources into these regions that we consider to be underprivileged. But the more we learn about it, it's like, is that a good thing? Is that what they want or need? And why are we so seemingly hell-bent on helping people that don't necessarily need it or want it yeah and i don't know the answer to this why do we why are we so invested in casting ourselves as the saviors of africa yeah well i think this i mean it all comes back down to colonialism really and i think this is this is what's kind of like coming now it's this kind of new it's this neo-colonialism of kind of 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 power over them um but then using kind of charitable organizations and in, and in a way creating dependence on charitable organizations and aid. You know, it's, it's much, creating this sense of dependence is, is never gonna be good for any kind of society. Yeah. Um, so that's why there needs to be, the, the key thing I feel like with, with, with kind of development aid and stuff, it's about creating again access to resources access to education education for me is the most important thing in any society whether it's like here in in the uk or in the us or in the gambia or anywhere education from the ground up is where true change will will happen and i think this is also the interesting thing that i find with um with video is that like going back to what, what you were saying about school, you know, like we're, we're, given, we're given this narrative and we're also given this kind of sense that, oh yeah, everyone's different, you know? And like, yeah, everyone's different, but that's, that's great. But what video I feel has the power to do is to, in a way, connect to, to people who may seemingly be completely different to you, you know, to... A, a, a child in the in in the Gambia or or wherever, um, but when you can kind of connect to them on on screen and on camera, and kind of also see a part of you in them in terms of like, so I say this all the time and I, I feel like a broken record sometimes. But my favourite thing to film, um, which didn't actually make it into this video, but I um, know oh maybe it did. I don't know. Um, is making someone making a cup of tea or a hot drink because it's such a universal human thing to do you know like we all make a hot drink um wherever we are whether it's in a hut in the desert or in you know a flat in new york it's such a human visceral thing you know like um 
And when you see that on screen, someone else is doing it, you see a part of you doing it and you're like, oh, wow, we're all doing, we're all doing the same thing. But the way we're doing it is different. And I think breaking down those, those stereotypes and those built-in stigmas and stuff that we all have or that's like, that we've been conditioned to kind of believe through our kind of society and through our schooling, I feel film can just break it down and create a sense of oneness. You know, I don't want to be too lofty, but film has the power to change the world, man. <laughs> well, I think you're exactly right, man. I think that's a great, that's a great way to uh, close it. Thank you so much for coming on, Remy. Thank you so much. Again, uh, check out Jenga Bus on Matador Network January 26th. Remy, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Nice one. Thanks a lot. All right, well, we're here in News of the Day after a great chat with Remy. Thanks again to Remy for coming on, and be sure to check out his film on January 26th. Our first news story is Turkmenistan's infamous Gates of Hell may finally close. For those unfamiliar with what the Gates of Hell are, it is essentially a pit of continually burning natural gas in the Karakum Desert of Turkmenistan. It's been burning since 1971 after scientists uh, drilling for oil lit it on fire after accidentally causing this massive crater in the earth while drilling for oil, and it's been burning ever since. It has turned into one of the country's biggest tourist attractions, but now the president of Turkmenistan, Gurban Guli Burda Muhammadu, has decided if, that he's... If correct, that was an incredible, flawless pronunciation with no hesitation whatsoever. <laughs> like, I don't know if that was right, but that you, you, you said that with the utmost confidence. So the president of Turkmenistan, Gurban Guli Muhammadu, the president of Turkmenistan. Gur- <laughs> I've, had, I've had any of this out. I hope the president, you know. No, the first one was the best one. But if the president of Turkmenistan, Gurban Guli Burdamahamadu, has anything to do with it, he's going to shut it down in the hopes that he can use the uh, natural resources within the gates of hell to better serve his people. Um, I guess there'd have to be some studies done, and maybe he's done them, as to whether the natural gas in there would benefit better than the tourist draw. But... Uh, I don't know. I'm not surprised that it's happening, Evan. I, I don't know what your thoughts are. I'm surprised it's lasted this long. Yeah, I guess so. It's it's funny because I feel like some tourist destinations that become really, really popular like this almost become what foreigners associate with the country itself. Like, I don't know anything about Turkmenistan. I couldn't give you a single fact about Turkmenistan. But I know that of the existence of this cool Gates of Hell attraction. And I've always been like, that seems cool. I want to go there. And to me, when you say like, oh, yeah, there's some environmental concerns and there's economic opportunity that's being lost, I totally understand that from a government, from a political perspective and economic perspective might make complete sense to close it. But for me, I'm still like, oh, that sucks. That's like their, that's like their one thing because I don't know anything about Turkmenistan. So from like the ignorant Western perspective, I'm against this because I don't know anything else that the country has to offer. So I think that closing this would have a huge impact on tourism and that they really would need to have a concerted effort to highlight some other aspects of the country that would be enticing to travelers. Right. Well, part of it, you know, from my perspective, again, as a Westerner, is that Turkmenistan is not, A, an easy country to gain access to visit, and B, an easy country to visit even once you do have a visa. So uh, shutting down the country's most famous tourist attraction doesn't really make any sense to me. But I, I will admit that, yeah, I don't know the backstory of why the president wants to do that besides the fact that he wants to use the resources to better serve his people. So maybe, you know, and what's maybe the president's name again? Gurban Guli Burda Muhammadu. 
You got it. Well, whatever his name is, in uh, 2019, he was filmed doing donuts next to the gas crater in a rally car. So taking the photo up there, so it looks like he's changed his tune and maybe wants to close it now. Well, you know, as the story closes, uh, and maybe it's a fitting close for this segment, too. This Maybe decisions like this are why Turkmenistan is the quote-unquote new North Korea of travel. Interesting. Well, we'll have to dive into that at some point in the future. Well, speaking of the gates of hell, we're going to talk about vegan-only travel. And this article coming up for us here is Vegan-Only Travel? Trip Company tempts curious travelers with $500 off Europe vegan tours. It's basically about a trip company called Kentiki, a tour provider, that is offering $500 off of its eight-day Vegan Food Europe Explorer Tour. It's well open to both vegan and non-vegan travelers, but vegan food is the only thing on the menu. They're visiting vegan spots in cities across Eastern Europe this summer. What do we think about this? Do we think that you can get an authentic travel experience that's true to the cultural traditions of the places you're visiting when you're only eating vegan food? Uh, you know, honestly, probably not. I mean, I, I, I sympathize with the, with the, the reason why a lot of people are and want to be vegan. Uh, however, I, I've always been of the belief that a place's food is such a big part of its history, culture, and people that to overlook even a part of it when visiting a place isn't really the right thing to do if cultural travel is your goal. Right. And I think you can obviously have a great time going around Eastern Europe and just eating vegan food. You can do a lot of other things. It's not all about the food. There's plenty of other excursions and cool experiences you can have. But if you really want to experience that culture's cuisine, limiting yourself to one very extreme dietary menu is not the way to do it. And I, again, I don't know enough about this. So if, any, if someone who's vegan wants to write us in the comments and uh, correct me, then by all means. But I feel like a vegan menu in the U.S. and a vegan menu in Bulgaria is going to look somewhat similar. If you want to explore a culture through its food, you have to broaden your horizons, not limit them. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but, I mean, you know, maybe that's not the point of that tour, I guess. I, I don't know. And I also, what I also feel as though anyone who's so interested in food that they would book a whole trip that is a culinary-themed trip probably wouldn't be vegan in the first place like if you're that into food and that into trying food and booking an entire trip based on seeing a country's culinary tradition you're probably not vegan and therefore you probably wouldn't want to do this trip and maybe that's why this company is offering 500 dollars off so right my yeah. guess is they offered it on a first go around no one was interested and they're like all right now we're gonna do this 500 off discount maybe we'll entice people yeah. to, to come there's probably something to that anyway that's all we got for this one. That's all we got for the show today. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halke, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Manador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.